0: 8474. Uh, this morning we're continuing uh, with uh, our chapel series with contributions from graduates or forthcoming graduates that the faculty uh, has selected and so this morning I ask that uh, Dan Warning would come up and uh, give our chapel address. Thank you. Well good morning. It is a pleasure to be invited to speak to you this morning. The text that I've chosen for us to look at for this morning's devotion is John eleven seventeen 17 through 35. I invite you to turn there. John eleven seventeen 17 through 35. Choosing this text is admittedly somewhat personal. This last week, having been my own grandmother's funeral, but also thinking over this past semester and really many of the years that I've been here at Westminster, I've seen pain and sorrow, even in what we sometimes call the seminary bubble. Um, Death seems to make its way in anyway, and I've seen both seminary family and church family wrestling with this sorrow and loss and I'm reminded of Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2, which tells us that studying this topic is always relevant. It says that it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all mankind and the living take it to heart. So this morning I want us to look to John 11 and see what Arkant Hughes calls um, death as not just an enemy, but as an evangelist. And in this text, we really see the gospel. We see how Jesus gives us gospel eyes to see through the pain of death and to see hope in him. So I'm going to read now John 11:17 17 through uh, 35 actually. This is God's word. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Well, so far the reading of God's word. I was thinking about a time this week that I remember very vividly growing up on the mission field in Mexico when there was a a man in his 80s from the Mayo uh, people group in the area where I grew up who was dying from cancer. And I remember going and visiting him with my dad and other members from the church And he was laying in this uh, small, dimly lit room on a burlap cot, uh, simply waiting for his final day to come. And he didn't know Jesus. He had no hope and no peace facing death. But then my dad and these other members of the church who were with him shared the gospel with him through translation from Spanish into Mayo, back into Spanish. And they left a cassette tape and a recorder to play it on. I know that's ancient history, right? Um, But it was a cassette tape with a recording of the Gospel of John in his own language. And over the course of a couple of weeks, he listened to the Gospel of John, and he believed in Christ. And everything changed from that moment on for him. He no longer faced death with fear. He was joyful at the prospect of seeing his Savior. He was confident as he faced death. And I can't help but think that as he listened to the Gospel of John, that John 11 would have been very meaningful to him. A little while later, his mother and father came and they said, uh, they came to speak with my, my dad and these other members of the church. They were 98 and 100 years old at the time. And they came to speak with them and they said, you know, we've never in our entire lives seen someone face death with confidence and peace. And they said, we're not so young ourselves. That was their words. And they said, we want to know what it's like to see death with peace and to meet death with confidence they both lived for about four more years after that. And those four years were lived with the confidence and peace of knowing Jesus. Because they too believed the gospel and believed in Christ. You see, as the old hymn says, it really is true. It is not death to die for those who believe in Jesus. And I think that's really the main thing we see in this text in John eleven seventeen 17 through 35. It's a great summary of the truth that we see here. And this morning, I want us to look at this text and see two comforting, confidence-giving truths from John 11, 17 to 35. First, we see that Jesus engages in our grief. And secondly, we see that Jesus promises victory over the grave. First, Jesus engages in our grief. And we really see Jesus engaging in our grief in two ways. First, we see Jesus engages in our grief as a man. Just consider the message the very intimate message that Mary and Martha sent to Jesus when Lazarus had become ill is recorded for us in John 11:3 so the sisters sent word to Jesus lord the one you love is sick the one you love you know even though we confess that Jesus is very god and very man i think that sometimes we tend to forget he had close intimate loving friendships when he lived on earth We tend to look at Jesus through the doctrinal lens, and so we should. And when we see Jesus through that lens, we see his divinity, we see kingship, intercession, atonement, all of these things. But in all of that, do we sometimes forget that Jesus is the man who loves, the man who befriends, the man who cherishes. Even John, the author of this gospel, knew Jesus as the one who loves, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John 21, seven. And here in this story, we see Jesus is not only a man who loves, but a man who knows what it's like to lose a beloved friend. Verse 35 is one of the most powerful pictures of Jesus as this cherishing one, this loving one. We see in verse 35, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Hidakusen ha yesus. Two words, three in Greek, but there's a whole world of comfort and joy and hope for those of us facing sorrow and loss because we see that Jesus wept see he engages in our grief not just as God the son not just as the third the second person of the Trinity not just as the eternal word not just as the creator but as the word become flesh the word who dwelt among us the one Jesus loved is dead and here we see the author of life cries over death And that's comforting, isn't it? That's comforting even when we're not sure of the final state of that loved one who has died. We know that Jesus is not unacquainted with our grief. We know that he's a man of sorrows, a man who is acquainted with grief. And here we see him well acquainted with sorrow and loss of a dear friend and loved one. But there's something else I want you to see in verse 33. In verse 33, we see that not only does Jesus engage in our grief as a man, But also, as this verse indicates, Jesus engages in our grief as the Messiah. As the Messiah. The ESV, which I read from, says that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit. A far better translation would be something like Jesus bellowed by the spirit. The word embrimaomai, it means to snort or to bellow. I picture a, a wild horse stamping its foot, flaring its nostrils. It's this picture, this metaphor for anger. So the spirit who empowers Jesus in his earthly work as the Messiah here is stirring him up in in the face of this death and sorrow that he's witnessing. It stirs him up and moves him to bellow, to snort. He's angry. He's angry. Martha will tell Jesus in verse 27, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. And Jesus engages in our grief as the Messiah. Here we see him with this passion to fulfill his mission. He has come into the world to conquer the grave. B.B. Warfield powerfully uh, described what we're witnessing here and what's going on. He says, quote, "'It is death that is the object of his wrath, "'and behind death him who has the power of death "'and whom he has come into the world to destroy.'" Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage and he advances to the tomb, as Calvin said, as a champion who prepares for conflict. What John does for us in this particular statement is to uncover to us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation. Not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe, Jesus smites in our behalf. You see, when Jesus will say, Lazarus, come out, it's really a battle cry against the one who was a murderer from the beginning, as he said elsewhere. First John 3, 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Here we see Jesus enraged, really, as he engages in our grief, not just as a man, but also as the Messiah, the one who has come to deliver us from sin and pain and death. So we see first that Jesus engages in our grief, but there's a second thing I want us to see here. And it's that not only does Jesus engage in our grief, this this passage also shows us that Jesus promises victory over the grave. He promises victory. So let's go back now to this conversation between Martha and Jesus as they meet on the road to Bethany. And we see in this conversation between them that the gospel of life is wrapped up in this conversation between two souls that are broken over pain and loss and death notice first as we look at this the candid faith that Martha shows she like Mary expresses her big concern to Jesus she says Lord if you had been here my brother would not have died if you had been here my brother would not have died that demonstrates faith right because it assumes that if Jesus had been there things would have been different but nevertheless she feels the confidence to speak candidly and say Lord If you had been here, why were you not here? Yet, she does so with confidence that Jesus is who he says he is. Because we see her saying, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I think this teaches us something about faith in the midst of sorrow and loss. It's a picture we see throughout the Psalms. For example, in Psalm 10, verse one, the psalmist cries out, why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? That's the candid voice of faith speaking. And we know it's faith because in verse 12, the psalmist cries out, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why? But at the same time, arise. That's what's happening as Mary and Martha process their Savior's absence at Lazarus' death. And that's the sort of candid faith that we are invited to express as we process those very same things in our lives. We can cry out to our Lord, our friend, in honesty about our concerns, about our confusion, yet at the same time with hope and confidence, he is who he says he is. But perhaps most of all, I want you to hear the bold assurance that Jesus gives in this conversation with Martha. I think this is one of the most heartbreaking encounters in all of scripture with death outside of the crucifixion. We see the sting of death stinging very sharply in this text. But Jesus is here to give bold assurance. He's here to give confidence. He's here to promise victory over the grave. When Jesus tells her that Lazarus will rise again, he's really saying more than she's hearing, right? He says, your brother will rise again. And Martha She shows that she believes in the resurrection. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She acknowledges that there will be a resurrection. She's no doubt heard that already from the many Jewish mourners who had come and had been some small comfort to her. So you can see her almost giving an obligatory nod of the head. Yes, I know that he will rise at the resurrection on the last day. But what she doesn't understand, what she hasn't fully understood yet, is that the resurrection that she believes in, the resurrection that she believes will happen, is standing there right in front of her. And that lack of understanding really paves the way for one of the most glorious I am statements in all of John's gospel. We see in verses 25 through 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? I love what Leon Morris says about this bold assurance that Jesus gives in the face of of death. He says, His words about faith and life are not a philosophical dictum to be critically argued. They are a saving truth to be received in faith and acted on. This isn't the time for a Pharisee, Sadducee throwdown about the validity of the resurrection. It isn't time for philosophical proofs, though the resurrection of Lazarus certainly will be proof enough. Here, Martha needs a promise. A promise is what's needed, and it's a promise that Jesus gives. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And it's a promise that calls for action because Jesus completes that statement with a question. Do you believe this? It's the question we need to ask at all times when we face sorrow and loss, when we think about our future final day. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Do you believe that Jesus truly is the resurrection and the life? Jesus says, I am. It's who he is. It's his name. It's his identity. I am the resurrection and the life. So we see Jesus here engaging in our grief and promising victory over the grave. To close, I want to point out just one piece of gospel geography that we see in this story. This promise that Jesus gives and then the resurrection of Lazarus, it's like this ominous flashing arrow pointing straight to the shadow, valley of the shadow of death that awaits Jesus in Jerusalem, less than or about two miles away, the text says. He's headed to Jerusalem and there he will cry out for the cup to pass. He will cry out in anguish as the whip crosses his back. He will cry out in anguish as the spikes pierce his hands and his feet. He will cry out in anguish as the weight of sin and the curse crush his soul. And he will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where were you? And then he will cry out that wonderful statement of the gospel at the end of the crucifixion It is finished. And after that, he will be laid silent in the grave. All of this for you. All of this for those who believe. We see this deepness, this darkness in the tears of Jesus as we read this text. Because as those tears are dropping to the ground over his friend's death, he's counting the cost. He knows what's coming. He's already said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. And when he raises Lazarus up from the grave, he looks into the yawning tomb and he sees the Father's will for our redemption at such a great cost to himself. It's awaiting him about two miles away at the cross of Calvary. But we know that it is not death to die for those who believe because it was not death to die for Jesus. The tomb held Lazarus for four days and the Bible tells us that Christ was held for only three days. And one day the risen Christ would proclaim to the Apostle John, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Revelation 1.18. I am alive forevermore. I am the resurrection and the life. I hold the keys of death and Hades. That's our confidence. That's the joy of those who believe. For those who trust in Jesus, for forgiveness for their sins and eternal life. Jesus promises us, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would help us to believe this, that we would always find our joy and peace as we look forward to our final days, as we experience sorrow and loss of family and friends, Lord, that we would know that you are the resurrection and the life, that you know our sorrow and our grief. You are not unacquainted with what we're going through. And you promise, Lord, that there is hope, that it is not death to die for those who believe in you. We pray all of this in the name of Christ, the resurrection and the life. Amen. Copyright 2017, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.